All right, welcome back to the Young Turks, guys. We got a bit of a legend for you guys right now. Alex Gibney is an award-winning documentarian. Documentarian. Anyway, <laughs> so you say, what awards has he won? Oh, only an Academy Award, multiple Emmy Awards, Grammy Award, several Peter Body Awards, the DuPont Columbia Award, the Independent Spirit Award, the Writers Guild Award. But I, I gotta stop. There's more. His movies are the smartest and Ron, the smartest guys in the room. Go and clear Scientology in the Prison of Belief and the Taxi to the Dark Side. Okay, he's got a new movie out called Citizen K. Alex, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, Jen, good to see you. Uh, great to see you. So uh, this is about Russia. Boy, is that timely. Uh, and it's about the corruption there. In fact, uh, I think the most compelling part of it is what happens when democracy slips away from you and the person in charge starts locking up their political opponents. Now, that's we're in scary times here in America. So let's hope it doesn't get to that. But that is on, for the first time in my life, it's on the board. <laughs> and I'm worried about that as a as a uh, potential outcome here, but let's let's focus on what happened in Russia. So in order to do that, we're gonna get to Putin, and I know who some of the bad guys here. I'm not sure who the good guys are. That's what this movie also explored. Um, but we got to go back to the beginning when the Soviet Union uh, fell. So talk to us about that transition and what came out of that transition, especially vis-a-vis -vis your subject in the movie. So Citizen K is about a man named Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who in the early 2000s became Russia's richest man. But in the late 80s, early 90s, when uh, communism was uh, burning and crashing and was being replaced by what would become a kind of new Wild West free market capitalism, um, Khodorkovsky was a, a son of two Soviet era engineers didn't have much of anything. He he got into a sort of black market selling of blue jeans and computers, made a grub stake. And then there was this peculiar period where Russia decided to go cold turkey into free market capitalism. And in order to transfer the assets of many of the state enterprises into private hands, they issued these things called vouchers. And everybody got a piece of uh, one of their little, uh, you know, local enterprises. And they could hold it and hope that it would appreciate. They could sell it. Um, they could um, invest it. But nobody really understood the whole capitalist system. So it's it, it looked to a few people like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who started buying up these vouchers because they understood how to play this new game of capitalism. The next thing they know, he knew that he had ended up with ownership stake in a whole bunch of companies. He, he then became a banker. He had to read about how to <laughs> be a banker. He, he had a book called, I think, um, How to Be a Banker that he read, and then he became a banker for the Russian state. And, and over time, he became, and very quickly, I might add, within, within the course of about eight years, he became the richest, richest man in Russia. He was one of these people called oligarchs. And by the early 2000s, seven men, Owned 50% of the Russian economy. Oh, Jesus Christ. Although, on the other hand, here in America, six men, I believe, six people own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the country. So we're really not that different at all in that sense. We're different in terms of scale, but you're right that in many ways, doing this film was a kind of cautionary tale in terms of where we could go. Yeah. So before I get to Putin and how he changed things up there, 
mainly for the worse, if you can believe that. Because so far, what we've set up is not pleasant. Let's go a little bit more unpleasant. One of Hodorowsky's, if I'm saying that right, and there's no way I am, political opponents gets gunned down in a hell of bullets at one point. Is that a coincidence? How dirty were the oligarchs in setting this up even before Putin arrived on the scene? Okay, let's just say that, that that era of the 90s was kind of either a Wild West era or if you want another metaphor, it's kind of like Goodfellas with Gulag. Um, and, uh, and the person you're talking about is a man named, um, a man who was the mayor of Neftugansk, a, a, a city in Western Siberia. And he was trying to, he was a, a kind of opponent of Hodakovsky's because he claimed that Yukos, the, the company that Hodakovsky controlled, wasn't paying taxes. Hodakovsky claimed that uh, this guy was taking the taxes when they did pay them, and he was giving it to Chechen gangsters instead of paying the salaries of nurses and doctors. They ultimately reached a kind of an agreement, but two days later, this guy was brutally gunned down. As, as somebody said to Hodakovsky, his brains were spilled out all over the street. And he was gunned down, as it happens, on Hodakovsky's birthday, which was a kind of gangster thing that uh, was done back then, you know, where, where, where people would do it for the boss. Um, and not dissimilar to what would happen on Putin's birthday many years later when a, a, a powerful investigative journalist named Anna Politkovskaya was gunned down on Putin's birthday. In any event, this guy was murdered, brutally murdered, and many people tried to pin it on Hodakovsky. But it sounds like based on your telling of the story there, it's also possible that it wasn't him, that it was the fact that he did that, that the mayor did the deal with him. And perhaps if he was with Chechen gangsters, maybe it was the gangsters who didn't like that deal. Uh, what do I know? I don't know, that's why I'm asking. No, 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 I think you're right. I think it was the Chechen gangsters. And, and I spent a lot of time on the murder in the film because one of the things that happens is that, well, we don't know for sure who did it. Um, What's true is that over time, as Hodakovsky becomes an enemy of Vladimir Putin, mysteriously, the charges keep changing and the, and, and, and the people who committed the crime keep changing until by a few years ago, now the Russian government is certain that it was Hodakovsky who did it. So it's, <laughs> it's a way of making uh, the facts fit the political context. Yeah, so Alex, now we arrive at Putin. So you've got these oligarchs, these seven guys controlling a huge percentage of the Russian economy. Putin wins, first, did he? I mean, the fact is Putin was appointed president by Boris Yeltsin. Yeltsin wins in part because of the oligarchs. In 1996, you know, Yeltsin had a 3% approval rating, but the oligarchs did this famous deal called Loans for Shares where they gave the state and Yeltsin hundreds of millions of dollars in exchange for huge positions in um, national uh, companies. And that's how Hodakovsky got Yukos, his oil company. Uh, so Yeltsin is in power uh, and the oligarchs assume that Yeltsin's gonna take care of them. And they assume that the guy that Yeltsin is gonna appoint, Putin, who he does appoint him sort of midnight 1999, right, on, right as, as uh, all the computers were turning for Y2K. Uh, he appoints him president, and Putin takes over, and the oligarchs assume that Putin is going to protect their money and their power and privilege. Mm, how'd that turn out for him? Well, 
It depends. If you were loyal to Putin, it turned out very well. If you weren't loyal to Putin or if you criticized him, it didn't turn out very well at all. For the two people who owned uh, TV networks, one of whom was one of Putin's biggest boosters and the guy responsible really for him getting the appointment, he was tossed out of the country, a guy named Boris Berezovsky. Same thing with a guy named Vladimir Guzinski, who ran another TV channel, because Putin wanted to control television. He saw that how important that was for Yeltsin, and he was going to just take control in the um, 2000s. The other person it didn't end up so well for was Hodakovsky. In 2003, Hodakovsky was on a televised panel with Putin about corruption. And Hodakovsky basically accused Putin of corruption on national television. And a few months later, Hodakovsky was in a Siberian prison. I'm sure that's a wild coincidence. Um, <laughs> we're going to get back to that because that's really the heart of the matter here in a second. Uh, but by the way, uh, you know, political operatives taking over a television station because it's so important. I mean, somebody who worked for Richard Nixon and did communications for him, and then George H.W. Bush, one of the biggest Republican operatives in the country, taking over a station like Fox News, and they're running it as propaganda for the Republican Party. I mean, that would never happen here in America, would it? Never. <laughs> Let alone, if you ask me, CNN, NPR, New York Times, all working for uh, the corporate Democrats. But that's another story. Um, so maybe another documentary one day. Okay, uh, so he takes over the TV stations. But I want to just quickly, relationship between Putin and Yeltsin. Uh, what happened there and how did Putin completely grab power uh, ultimately? I mean, literally he was appointed because when uh, he, uh, Putin was prime minister. And so when Yeltsin steps down, as he did in around midnight 1999, Putin becomes president. Um, so he was appointed, in effect, by Yeltsin. Now, uh, three months later, I think it was three months later, he runs for election and, and he wins. But um, he, nobody knew who Putin was. He was a nobody. He was a kind of functioning bureaucrat who was good at getting things done for people. He had done it for the mayor of St. Petersburg. He had done it for Yeltsin. Um, but with the power of television behind him, he refashions himself as a kind of macho superhero who's going to save Russia, really, from the chaos that was caused by the oligarchs. And he's going to bring the oligarchs to heel. And he's going to bring the violence in Chechnya to, to an end with more violence. So he was going to be the strong man that was going to make Russia great again. And indeed, for some period of time, things were more stable, aided in part by the fact that Putin um, benefited from the fact that oil prices suddenly soared through the roof and cash was just pouring into Russia in the early 2000s. Yeah, that's a, another lucky break for him. So, uh, so Khodorovsky, was he, it was, I guess he didn't understand the political dynamic there, which I'm surprised by. Because looking back at it with the benefit of hindsight, of course Putin's gonna arrest you. But at that point, was that the beginning? And that's why he didn't understand how obvious it was going to be that Putin would arrest you and not care about the facts at all? Well, the signs were there. I mean, Guzinski and um, uh, Berezovsky, the two people who owned the TV networks, had their networks taken away from them. And indeed, after Khodorkovsky called out Putin on national television, two of Khodorkovsky's key executives were arrested. Everybody was telling him that Putin was coming for him. But I think Khodorkovsky believed that he was too big. Uh, he was too big to jail and that Putin wouldn't move after him. And at the same time, he was a he, he, he was macho and he was going he was not going to 
um, live in fear. So he he figured maybe at the most he might get a year in prison and big deal. He still have his billions. But what happened instead was that he was put in prison uh, in a kind of a gulag situation, and his company was broken up and given in effect to uh, Putin's one of Putin's buddies, a guy named Igor Sechin, and, it be, and Yukos became a company called Rosneft, which is what it's called today. Yeah, so I want to go back to Rosneft in a second too. But so he did ten years in a Siberian prison, right? I mean, that ain't no joke. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, I mean, it took his family two days just to get to him from Moscow. That's how far flung it was. It was it was near the Mongolian and Chinese border, near a uranium mine. And I think Hodakovsky thought that he might spend the rest of his life in prison because he was first jailed for tax charges. But then there was a second child. I mean, first he was jailed because he allegedly didn't pay enough taxes um, on the oil he sold. But then in the second trial, the Russian government accused him of having stolen his own oil. I don't know where they thought he put it, like in his backyard or something. And it was in that second trial that Hodakovsky had some fun. He decided it was a complete show trial. And so he began to show up to prosecutors and the judge and the whole system, not unlike sort of the, the, the famous, you know, Abby Hoffman trial uh, in 1968 or 69. Uh, so it was a moment when public opinion began to turn in Hodakovsky's direction, because up to that point, as a as a rich billionaire who profited, you know, off the exploitation of uh, of the 90s, he was kind of reviled. But that public opinion kind of turned as he showed just how capricious and brutal could be the Russian state. So he, and he and he and he fought against it, even though you know the only power he had in prison was to take his own life, which he threatened to do a number of times in hunger strikes um, in order to get better treatment for some of his own people. I I learned on this film what a dry hunger strike was and what a wet hunger strike is. I had no idea. A dry hunger strike goes very fast, and according to Hodakovsky, who engaged in a few dry hunger strikes, you you have to be certain that there's a a decision tree that can take place quickly, or else you're going to die. Yeah, wow. Uh, and he's now finally out and he uh, is in exile and he's in London. Uh, but as we all know, you're not necessarily safe in London uh, from from Putin. So no. that that's a whole nother <laughs> issue that we'll get to in a second. Uh, okay, but let's go to the state of affairs today in Russia because they have so-called elections. I, I don't think that those are real in any way, shape or form. I don't believe the Russian government is honest even 1%. Am I now too skeptical or or is that roughly right? Is there anything left honest? And if I'm right about that or at least halfway right, what do the Russian people think? Do they think, oh, we have a king and it's over? Or do they believe some of the mythology that the that Putin's media enablers are putting out that you they actually live in a functioning democracy? Well, Jenki, you ask a good question because it's a peculiar kind of system. Um, on the one hand, Putin hasn't really put in place a, a pure dictatorship like North Korea or um, uh, China. Um, you know, there are elections, but the Russians call it election theater. There's a lot of hurly-burly, and we show some of it in the film. In fact, some wild debates where, you know, people are screaming at each other, throwing water on each other. But the one person who isn't, well, there's two people who are not participating in those um, TV debates. One is Putin, who everybody assumes will win. And the other is an opposition figure named Alexei Navalny, who might give Putin a run for his money, 
but uh, he is not permitted by law to run for president. <laughs> In fact, because <laughs> from a pragmatic standpoint, because he might show Putin up. So what's interesting about the Russian system is that it needs to go through this kind of weird pretense. It needs to have this election theater. It satisfies a certain kind of demand for representative government. Indeed, recently there were big protests over um, monkeying with um, local elections in, um, in, in in Moscow. So I think that people are paying attention. Um, yet at the same time, there is this kind of weirdly cynical um, compact between the, the people and the rulers where they sort of accept the fact that it's a democracy which does have some valence, but it's not a real democracy in the sense that they know Putin's always going to win, which is okay for a lot of people, as I learned, because a lot of people, particularly outside of the big cities, like Putin. So it's a, it's a weird kind of system. Yeah, it, it actually, uh, I feel like Erdogan copied Putin almost exactly in Turkey, uh, where you do have uh, probably elections that are a little bit more real than the ones in Russia, and, and Erdogan's party can lose local elections, but Erdogan always remains in power. That's right. <laughs> And so, that's right, so you can you can rig the laws to your benefit, and and that's that's ultimately how it works. But but the the theatrics of democracy are maintained. Yeah, it's important because it helps placate the people. Mm -hmm. and, that's right. And so that theater is so important, and media is so important. So that uh, turns us to America uh, now. Rosneft had a deal with Exxon Mobil. Uh, and it was a half a trillion dollar deal, but the revenue from it could be as high as a stunning nine trillion dollars. Uh, so uh, Putin appears to help uh, Trump win, whether Trump asked for that help or not. Putin uh, seems to have delivered it. And then look at that, ExxonMobil CEO became the Secretary of State for America. Um, how about that? How about that? <laughs> okay, quickly. Let me by the way, I mean, notably back in the day. Khodorkovsky tried to do his own merger with Exxon. And it was one of the things at the time that Putin, uh, we're told, put him in prison for because he didn't like uh, Khodorkovsky, an independent who was opposed politically to what Putin wanted to do, you know, giving the, the, the crown jewels of the Russian economy to an American company. So there's a long history with Yukos, then Rosneft and Russia and the United States. It's interesting. Yeah. So. Do you think that was a coincidence? Because I mean, the idea of a, a oil CEO becoming Secretary of State is outlandish. It never heard of before, and all of a sudden he's put into place. How do you think that went down? It's complicated, and and I'm so nervous about uh, making the you know making leaps about connections between uh, Putin and Trump in terms of the idea that there might be some kind of red phone someplace. I think in a way it's more, it's weirder and more chaotic than that, that they see in each other um, kindred spirits. And that that for us as Americans has to be more worrying than whether or not there's a red phone from Vladimir Putin to, um, uh, to Trump. Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. So look, that's probably another half an hour interview, right? So yeah, we'll save that. At least. Yeah. I think there, a lot of people are arguing about that for a long time. Absolutely, uh, me included. So then let's go to finally the cautionary tale part. So where did the turn come? What do we have to be on the lookout for in America? 
at if if X happens, oh no, it's gone, it's already gone. But like Hodorowsky didn't realize that by the time he was opposing Putin, it was already too late. Where's the Look, turn I, I where it's too late? One of the things that separates us, the United States of America, from Russia are the power of our institutions. You know, I would argue that we have a much more vigorous rule of law. I wouldn't argue. I think it's a fact that we have a much more vigorous rule of law in this country than does uh, than do the Russians. But that uh, rule of law is being eroded and indeed threatened by by Trump in many ways. And I think also the other interesting thing that um, Putin has been very good at is engaging in what some people call post-truth. That is to say, you know, um, basically lying baldly, openly, without any care or concern about uh, any tether to actual factual, factual accuracy. It's almost beyond lying. It's what some people call bullshitting, just because you're just making it up as you go along. But you don't need to be worried about it. And there's this weird pact going on where people know that you're lying, but they take it anyway because they have, they feel some sort of emotional affinity with you. But over time, what it does is erodes any kind of rational analysis of what's going on. That's something that really has happened full force in Putin's Russia. And that's something that Trump is very much um, a, a part of or echoing in this country today. The other thing, of course, there are appeals to a distant, glorious past. I mean, you know, Putin is very fond of evoking the grand days of the Soviet Union. Most people forget that would involve Stalin. And Trump, of course, is always, you know, wanting to make America great again and, and, and using as his foil um, the people, uh, those others that, uh, that would, would, would challenge his base. So I think there are a lot of uncomfortable echoes. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, let's, let's remember that this Russia, the Russia of Vladimir Putin, is not a communist country. It's a crony capitalist country. And it's capitalism, which so long as you play ball with the powers that be, is um, unmoored from any rules or, or, or regulations, which is where Trump would like to take capitalism in this country. So there are a lot of uncomfortable parallels with, with what Trump wants to do, where he wants to take us, and where Russia is today. Yeah. That said, uh, I don't think there's a red phone. Yeah, I, I got you. And at this point, the red phone is not nearly as important as what Trump is doing with this country. And right. so uh, now, although it is important. <laughs> so look, and I would use the word haunting. I think the similarities are haunting. Uh, and and as you know, you look at uh, how it unfolded, and you see the same things happening here. For example, uh, you know when you talk about Vladimir Putin brazenly th doing things that are untrue, the I, we covered on the Young Turks many many years ago when he did this. Uh, he played hockey with the national team. He scored five goals. He is so much slower than them, and they let him score. And it's the most obvious thing that you could possibly see. But yet they do it. It's almost like, and it's a form of torture where they you get people to admit things that they know aren't true, right? And so, and you see Putin doing it, and you see Trump doing it, and and so. But Alex, I got to ask you one last question. Back to the turn. Yes. So you can see it in the media. You can see it on Fox News. You can see the the same ideology and the same methodology. But the the turn is when you lose the rule of law. When you That's start right. locking up, whether it's people in the media first, and I've said that about Trump even before the movie, 
right? He will lock up people in the media before he'll lock up his political opponents because you gotta intimidate the press before you move on to, to politics. So is the turn the minute Trump arrests someone in the media or someone in politics and no one objects? I think the turn has already happened in the sense that Trump has consciously tried to undermine the rule of law in any number of ways, in part by refusing to admit that any of his own behavior is either unethical or illegal, and that he couldn't possibly even be indicted or jailed for anything that he does. So that's part, but the but once he starts to jail media figures, yeah, I think that's a clear symbol. Let's look at what happened in Russia. Two of these oligarchs, Kuzinski and Berezovsky, had their networks taken away from them and turned into state networks by um, Vladimir Putin. And so if, if we're looking for signs, look to how Trump treats the media. I think it's a good way. And, and also the way that tether, that, that weird tether that he has with Breitbart and Fox, um, both post-truth networks. For commercial reasons, networks on the other side are becoming unfortunately too much like Fox. but. Uh, but it's really discomforting the way that you have a network that is essentially a broadcast mechanism for the president of the United States, which is perilously close to what Putin has in Russia. The difference is that Putin has utter control of all television networks. And by the way, in a sense, uh, we dodged the first bullet, but there are many more to come if he wins re-election, I'm worried. Uh, when he said, I'm not gonna allow the merger of AT&T and Time Warner unless the head of CNN is fired. If that gambit had worked and they'd fired the head of CNN and put in someone overly friendly to him, well, okay, then we've then it has begun. Then that's right. And so that that didn't happen. So that's good news. And we're about to see if the rule of law is going to be upheld, including today when impeachment begins. Indeed, he's testing all of our institutions. That's right, or the conviction after impeachment begins in the Senate. All right, Alex Gibney, so first of all guys, jigsawprods.com is the website, but you've got to watch Citizen K. It is an amazing movie written and directed by Alex Gibney, so make sure that you check it out. Alex, thank you so much for joining us, really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jen, good to talk to you again. All right.